Welcome to the In The Zone podcast with Mike Ryder and Josh Hughes. This podcast may contain swearing, plus it will be filled with lots of interesting chat. All the views are expressed are our own and are not those of our institutions or employers. You're welcome to share your own views in the comment box on the website. And if you like what you hear, please like, share and subscribe. And you can find out more on our website, innerzonepodcast.com. Or on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also like us on Facebook. So, without further ado, here's this week's episode. So, hello and welcome to the In The Zone podcast with me, Mike Ryder. Uh, me, Josh Hughes. In this episode, we're going to talk about, um, we're going to start by talking about essay writing um, and revisit something we've spoken about before um, in terms of AI and the possibility that AI might one day be able to write essays. And so, there's been something in the news recently, isn't there, Josh, where... Um, it turns out that an AI has now actually written an essay. Yeah, a passable essay, uh, apparently. Um, so we, we've spoken about this this tool before. Um, so a company called OpenAI, um, who by their name, you know, pride themselves on um, releasing all of their sort of code and tools on the internet for free for anybody. Um, and a few years ago, they made this text uh, generation algorithm or tool. Um, called gpt2 um and when it was when they'd done it they said actually even though our entire business ethos is about releasing everything for free um we're not going to do that uh, because it's so dangerous so they thought that this gpt2 tool was really dangerous because it would allow people to just generate text um you know enormous quantities of text um, that sounded sort of right, almost like, like it was written by a human being or not very far away from it. Um, and um, you know, they thought it would be perfect for sort of disinformation campaigns. I think this, when, it, when it was sort of ready for release, I, thought, I think it was sort of in their, what should we say, sort of media storm about, or not, not very long after kind of, revelations about the misinformation campaign of Americans in the run-up to um, electing Donald Trump. And um, yes, yeah, so they thought this this tool was, was incredibly dangerous, so they didn't want to release it. Um, and I think not long after, we sort of, me and yourself, Mike, sort of had a conversation about, well, what if it sort of becomes used for um, writing essays? But I think lots of people, ourselves included, kind of thought, oh, it's probably not that good. They're just kind of doing it as a marketing thing. Um, and it actually, apparently, it has been sort of superseded by some tools which are actually much better. Um, but anyway, eventually, kind of OpenAI did release this tool to the internet for for free for anybody to use, and um, somebody recently used it to to write an essay for them. Um, apparently, it took them about fifty goes or something, and and probably about half the time that it would actually just have taken them to simply write the essay themselves. But saving half the time is, uh, in, you know, saves half the labour, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, I was just going to ask, when you say it took them, say, 50 goes, um, one, but once the code's there, this links with what we were speaking about um, in the Ghostwriting Essay Mills podcast, but also what we were talking about in the um, the AI and art podcast we published recently. Um, I was just wondering, once the code's in place, surely that means it's really easy for them to then do the second essay and the third essay? Well, it depends, because in order for it to... Um to produce an essay you have to give it something to go off 
So you have to mm. give it a writing sample to um, for it to then generate further text from. So I suppose it's almost like you want to give it an abstract of an article or a, a, a pricey of something, and then you kind of want the tool to fill everything else out for you. Mm. Uh, but you sort of have to give it that initial data sample. So it kind of, it took, yeah, apparently it took him about, or the, or the I was going to say the author, but the um, the user of the tool, yeah, it kind of took him about 50 times to um, get the right sample so that an essay of uh, acceptable or quality was kind of, uh, was generated. Mm. So I was just thinking with machine learning though, um, over time, these tools will become intelligent and you'd assume that they, they would get better and better at this based on sort of submitted samples, especially I'm thinking about big data. Say if someone like Google had done this, um, they could be drawing the information from submitted samples from across the world. And then that would make an amazing, um, amazingly persuasive essay tool. Well, yeah, I mean, as I was saying, kind of some companies have uh, put out new tools that are basically superseded um, GPT-2. Uh, and I think Google is one of them. Um, I'm not sure what Google's tool is, is called. Um, I've just Googled it and nothing has come up, so uh, I'm not quite sure. But um, yeah, no, I think there's probably there's probably a few, quite a few companies that have, have produced tools as good or better, because obviously, as we know, technologies improve at exponential rates. Um, so it's not going to stay at this level for long. Um, no, and, and I think there's there are many implications which we've discussed in previous podcasts. But I mean, from an academic angle, obviously, we were talking about um, cheating when it comes to sort of ac academia and students essentially just getting an AI to do their work for them. But then obviously it gets worse than that when you think about, well, what this could have impact on, um, well, actual real research. And then obviously, of course, in the, the ability to influence people be it via um, mass generated content across the Internet. Yeah, and I think in so we focus on the academic sort of impacts first. Well, yeah, we'll um, start. On that sounds good to me. Um, I mean, you sort of you see, I remember previous yeah, was it? sort of a few years ago, somebody with a, with a, um, a text generation algorithm produced a um, a conference paper and submitted it to a conference and was accepted. Um, and but but kind of the implication of it was was not that this was actually a good paper that this algorithm or system had kind of first produced, but actually that the the uh, the conference wasn't very good. Because they, they, whoever was running it didn't, uh, you know, really read the paper and see what it was about. Because if they had done, they would have, you know, they would have seen. Um, so I suppose that's one issue in that it kind of the fact that this this tool can kind of fool people um, shows that this isn't, or perhaps that the well, I suppose it, it either shows that the people who are being fooled aren't very good, or that the tool is very good and therefore fools people who are actually good at their jobs. Um, and if that's the case, then that causes lots of problems because how are you going to monitor it? Or how are you going to monitor, you know, how are you going to see who's using it and who isn't? Or maybe there'll be some difference in writing style, I suppose. But as we, as we sort of mentioned in previous podcasts, often the people who teach um, you know, one module won't teach the next one. That, you, that a student attends 
And so kind of having that long-term understanding of how somebody writes and their writing style and how they approach things, um, you know, that's not that, should we say, institutional memory. Um, just will never be found, will never be generated. Mm. So kind of it becomes, you know, and, and for a lot of people who sort of say, how do you... Um, how do, how do you spot cheating in essays? Like students who've actually just copy and pasted something or had something written for them, you know, paid an essay mill or a ghostwriter or something like that. Um, how do you spot it? And kind of lots of people say, oh, well, it's, it, you see the, the change in the writing style where, yeah, so as, as I just said, kind of that necessary institutional memory won't be generated anymore. So it's kind of the, the time at which this tool is coming on the scene the um you know potential tools for spotting it you know are leaving the scene um so it's kind of a, a perfect storm in a way for cheating well yeah because the, the thing is with the tools that we have for detecting cheating they're based on similarity checks so they compare what's been submitted with other previously submitted works and also with sort of an array of websites but they can easily be fooled um, um i mean there's many different ways you can fool these systems i don't really want to um sell the, the ways that you can fool these systems um in the podcast because that would be me promote giving promotion and air to these views but they can be fooled quite easily i suggest and, and the problem with this essay writing tool is obviously it gets around that quite easily but i think you were just saying about um how we would detect changes in writing style i mean obviously there are also fundamental structural issues with education how it works now in that it's very it's a lot harder now to do that than it might have been say sort of 10 20 years ago because I mean I, I've, I've had cases of this myself that I've had to deal with plagiarism cases I mean it's the first essay I've ever seen from a student but at least I, I was quick enough thankfully in this case to spot that the student who happened to write a sort of an incredibly credibly well written essay um, was not the same as the student who I met in class and I was able to put two and two together but I have sort of hundreds of students like it's very hard to keep up with these things and you can't always necessarily put a face to a name because and often sometimes you'll be marking work that's a student that's not yours so you wouldn't even know that in the first place um because yeah. they're just they're just a name or a number to you so you're not to know so it is very very difficult um from an academic standpoint um until you get to like the longer pieces like dissertations and things where you can actually question people about their work um it's 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 it's, it's very difficult and i say this this um ai essay writing tool um I think I think we're going, we're going to see problems. I mean, I said this in the podcast we did about a year ago. I think it was. I think this is going to become a a bigger issue over time. I think, and uh, we're going to see the repercussions of this in all sorts of avenues and all sorts of walks of life. Yeah, because um, I suppose you know to move beyond sort of the academic context. I mean, perhaps the most the closest thing to our interest is kind of is the potentially use of this tool for sort of disinformation and information warfare. Mm. Um, there's also sort of more mundane things like, um, well, I suppose linked, but, um, you know, shoddy news websites that just use uh, this tool to, to generate rubbish content or shoddy book publishers who just use it for um, publishing sort of junk fiction. You know, how many book publishers basically publish the same book, the same formulate book with changes to the character names and the, and the location, and that's kind of it. And you know, that's the next one out next year. Mm. Um, well, I, I mean, I said about this in a previous podcast. If you remember the 
the publisher that I, I, I use for my uh, my young adult fiction book, The Darkest Hour, by the way, by MJ Ryder, um, the terms and conditions got updated and it said we will not yes. accept publications from sort of AI or sort of algorithmically generated content. So it's like they were preempting this in a way, um, in quite sort of scary way. Yeah, but I mean, I suppose that's, that, you know, that's an example of a publisher saying we're not going to do this, but you could actually... It's, you could imagine a publisher saying, you know, getting hold of this tool and saying, well, why do we need authors? Well, very much so. so Inter- yeah. Interestingly, right, just as a little aside here in the podcast, um, I got approached by um, a company that is that publishing books in China, right? Because um, like they have this sort of book subscription service over there. And what they do is they break up existing books into sort of chunks and people that subscribe get a chunk of this book each day, basically, and it's like an, as, a, as, a, as an ebook. Um, but they recently contacted me again because apparently they're looking for people to basically churn out new books. Um, but I mean, the rate of pay was so ridiculously low. Like it was, they wanted two and a half thousand words. I think it was a day or something, but for for a ridiculously low amount of money. But the point being that they're basically actively seeking humans to do this. So you think, well why wouldn't an AI do it? Because, I mean, the quality is not going to be good. Even the best writer in the world is not going to be able to produce amazing content over that time. You think, well, what then is the point of this product? What is the point of this book? I mean, who, who's really devouring this stuff? It's it's, it's an absolute bizarre world that's um, yeah. created this but situation. I, mean, I, wonder if, I wonder if kind of that is um, an example of, I can't remember what the term for it, but do you know like how 10, 15 years ago, if you went to a petrol station, there would be a automated car wash, mm. and you'd pay however much. Well, I didn't have a car back then, so I didn't pay anything. But um, <clears throat> people, <clears throat> people who wanted to would pay like ten, fifteen quid or something. They'd have the car wash by this big machine, um, and now kind of all those you know big machines kind of sit quite idle. If someone wants to go out and have their car washed for them, they go to a a forecourt somewhere and a small group of often migrant guys come out of a shop and and wash your car for you for a fiver um and it's not something that i pay for but it kind of shows that the price to this automation often we assume it will be cheaper than human labor but sometimes it isn't or it doesn't make value human work yeah so it doesn't it, it doesn't make money like the people who bought who invested in it thought it would and actually maybe because of the 2008 financial crisis and whatever else and kind of the depreciation of wages and kind of desperation um you see people who are willing to work for less and so it kind of yeah devalues human labor um so i wonder if kind of having really cheap um or really low weight rates of pay for that kind of writing is sort of something similar. Um, oh, well, actually, maybe it probably isn't because if it, if it was going to use something like GPT-2, which is available on the internet for anybody, um, obviously they'll have to pay for it. Um, but maybe it requires a bit too much effort to have sort of a long piece written by a, a, an algorithm because um, mm. it's all right for it to generate 5,000 words or well, less probably. I mean, this, the whoever's essay this was, I think it was an undergraduate one, so it's probably going to be max of about two and a half, three thousand words. But to generate, I, I suppose the average book is what 
100,000 words or something like that. Yeah. So to generate that is that is actually a lot. And for it to kind of have a, you know, a narrative that goes on and on and, and you know, all fits together and all links together and everything like that is actually going to be quite... Uh, Trying. Quite, diff- quite, diff- quite difficult to make an algorithm that can do it. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, I think it's possible. I mean, just to go back to, if you remember the Ghostwriting Essay Mills um, podcast we did, I talked about my time when I was a ghostwriter. And one of the things I didn't like about a job was a lot of the writing that I was doing in the end was so formulaic that essentially I felt, well, any, a robot could do this because you might have a new product, for example, um, that you're, you're trying to sell and you need to turn it into a press release. And you, you call someone up, you get a quote from them, then you basically you bookend that quote with a little bit of description about the product, add the contact details at the end, and away you go. And that could be done by anyone. I mean, we'd also do, art- I mean, this would extend to articles as well, for example. So I might be trying to sell a product and I'd say interview you, and I might have the transcript of our phone conversation. And then all I'd have to do is just basically take out the salient points that you've said, put them in sort of quote marks, and just basically join the interesting bits together um, in 800 words. Um, I think, I mean, that sort of thing could very easily be automated. And as you say, it sort of devalues the human skill in it. But at the same time, um, it's essentially an algorithm, isn't it? I mean, writing is a form of sort of algorithmic process, I think. Well, I, I think for me, I, I perhaps disagree with you because obviously you say pull out the interesting things in the interview. Well, how do you program interesting? Well, yeah, um, no, completely. I'll take thing, that. But um, yeah, no, I, 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 I take the point that lots of writing is formulaic and I think that's that's the stuff that's right for um you know for these sorts of algorithms these systems and programs whatever to do um you know like press releases like you're saying or yeah shoddy news websites and you know lots lots of there are there are lots of um I suppose they call them content farmers don't they in that lots of websites that sort of take news from other websites and rewrite it ever so slightly and then pretend that they're, you know, that they're these uh, investigative journalists or whatever, you know, real journalists who go out and get a story. Mm. But then again, actually, lots of, lots of newspapers basically write the same story as everybody else, don't they? Um, yeah, yeah there, there is that. And they're often led by publishing companies, because what, what will happen often is when you hear about a news item in a story, if you hear about a news story in the news, um, often it'll be based on a piece of research or something. And if you dig down a little bit, you think, oh, this research has been published by just an example, um, the RSPCA, as just an example, I was picking out, out of nowhere. Um, but actually what you find is actually really it's, it's the RSPCA have decided to make a press release around some sort of minor research they did. That then becomes a news item. So what happens is a lot of these companies will make their own news essentially as a promotional activity. And then suddenly that becomes a, a news item, which is which is bizarre, worrying and all sorts of things all at the same time, where actually you have this sort of capitalistic imperative actually also driving the news with press releases get turned into actual press. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not unusual to pick up a a paper, whether a local paper or a national paper. Um, you know, you flick a few pages and then there's an article that's that's actually got advertisement in very tiny writing at the top. Um, oh, the advertorial type stuff, yeah. But, I mean, I'm talking even beyond advertorials. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about um, they, they, they'll just go out of their way as, as a marketing stunt to do some very basic research, which they can then sell to a newspaper uh, under the sort of banner of research when really it's just a, a way of them sort of talking about themselves through the back door. Yeah. But it becomes, as I say, it's, it's, the, it's the formulaic nature that really that I was getting at because 
in a news desk, in a newsroom, you'll be receiving press releases from all, all sorts of angles all, all over time. And if you had an AI, an AI could very easily turn those in, churn those into um, news stories. And then this is where it becomes a problem, isn't it? Because there's no sort of quality control. I mean, there's not very much at the moment anyway, but there's even less in this sense because you don't need a human there, do you? you just, it just automatically turns a press release into a, into a, a mini news item. Yeah, and I think kind of the, the point of quality control is something as well. Um, you know, during kind of the recent political times that are very fractious and um, factional, you know, lots of people will resort to or will share kind of blogs or short pieces on such a body's website that supports their view. And often, if you ever, if you ever like, actually bother to read kind of what these trolls, basically, I guess, or ardent supporters of one side kind of put out, often it's very poorly written, so incredibly biased you couldn't even um you know a school child would see that's not a good source um but people kind of share it and yeah i say very low quality so i think one of the one of the, you know a major issue of this type of technology is that people don't actually care about the quality and so even if even if gpt2 or another or a similar type of tool isn't actually that good at what it's, what it's supposed to do. It doesn't really matter for political purposes um, in these types of arenas. And I'm talking kind of the very ardent kind of Trump supporters or Boris supporters or Corbyn supporters or whoever kind of, and not to, not that any, not that all of them are, are particularly um, susceptible to this kind of content, but you kind of see that a lot of them who get very angry on Twitter kind of seem to be um and you know the more and more content that's put out from you know that supports one type of view and if it's you know a, a, an algorithm like this can be used to put out thousands and thousands of articles every every month or week or maybe even every day mm. um it becomes sort of a deluge doesn't it and difficult to um well difficult to deal with and i think deal with for even the people who support those kind of views that are being um reiterated by this ai system mm. um but obviously incredibly difficult to deal with for people who um who would oppose it because there's you know stalin said something like Qu quantity has a has a um quality all of, of its own yeah quality all of its own yeah he was referring to you know the numbers of soldiers on a battlefield but I think it's equally applicable here for the numbers of uh, numbers of news article news articles and things. Yeah, I, yeah. So I agree. Quality, quantity does have a quality of its own, and this really much feeds into the way that the internet works. I think, and I guess there is a there's a there's a well there's a risk there's a possibility here that actually if these things do become so prevalent, actually it, it might fundamentally change the way we use and interact with the internet because there I think I think when you lose the, the the trust of sort of information sources and there's just you can't tell one thing from another, I think it's it's going to potentially impact upon um, what we use the internet for, how we use it. Um, but I think I think it is a real possibility that, as you say, I think I think we we could almost be deluged by content pro pro produced by AI essentially. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean the thing is, it's not like this content's really meaningful, is it? It's. Um... Um, junk basically so i suppose 
and kind of as we see the <laughs> the quality of stuff that gets shared on social media most of the time it's um most people don't have a very good filter for junk um so i don't know perhaps perhaps it will be deluged and but more for, due to the fact that people can't um can't differentiate quality from junk no indeed and I, I was thinking um as well whilst we were talking that this doesn't just apply to news as well because i was thinking about spam emails actually and i do i do a bit of work with um one of the universities i work for in the it department and we, we I, I write i say we write blogs about cybersecurity and things and we're quite interested in spam and phishing emails and things and one of the things with these emails is is obviously the thing that often can make them sort of make them um obvious to you is that the, like the spelling might be bad or it might not be designed correctly or something like that but i think there's a real possibility that these ai could be used to actually mass produce format an inordinate number of spam emails so actually there's a big potential for fraud um from this because a part of me thought to myself when i see all these spam emails i thought you know what if i just wrote this email and wrote it properly um i could actually persuade an awful lot of people so I thought, well, if an AI could write, he's better than um, the sort of people that are writing his emails currently. It's um, it's quite worrying, actually, I think, um, where where this could potentially go. I mean, I don't want to sound sort of all doom and gloom because I do think there are a lot of benefits to this sort of technology as well. But I think fundamentally, this this is going to change an awful lot of the way that we all um, behave and interact um, online and beyond online as well, if you go into the world of academia with this sort of essay writing that we were talking about and so on, and even books, print, print media, news items. Yeah, I think, I think that the, the potential implications are massive. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, and I think it's one of the things that we probably won't be able to um, comprehend until until kind of the effects are here. No, but, I th- but it's, it's been an interesting to actually be able to follow this news story because, as you say, we, I sort of made my foreboding prediction about this. I think we, we were, when we were talking about it before, I mean, as I say, it was a good number of months ago, maybe even a year ago. And obviously to see this news item come out, it's like, well, we knew that was gonna come at some point, didn't we? Um, and I, I, I think, as you, as you say, this is gonna become more prevalent. I mean, the issue will be really when it's when it's so ubiquitous that it's not, it doesn't even make a news item anymore. And then you have to think, well, <laughs> just who is it we're talking to? <laughs> or who is it we're reading? Um, who is who is it we're interacting with? Because it's, um, I mean, we're noticing it already. I was just thinking about um, call centres and um, chatbots. Because if you noticed, I mean, even um, like uh, like junk, these these sort of um, junk sort of uh, phone calls you get now, the voices, the automated voices, are sounding increasingly human-like with sort of the pause and the crackle and stuff now, and the sort of the, the tone of voice and inclination. So, oh, hello, is that Mike Ryder? Um, and all this sort of stuff. And it, and and also these automated chatbots, where you almost feel that you're liaising with a human. And as say, when this te- as this technology gets better, um, the blurring between this human and the machine will become even more um, murky. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think it's going to be a wild ride. A wild ride, indeed. I mean, I think. That's probably a good way to end this particular <laughs> podcast, I think. Um, yeah. Probably sort of sums it up in um, quite good detail. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a wild ride indeed. And as as has been this podcast, Josh. <laughs> um, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the In The Zone podcast with Mike Ryder and Josh Hughes. For more podcasts and interesting chat, visit inthezonepodcast.com.